Hello, I'm Mark Price, and welcome to my podcast, Meet the Business Author. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that businesses and individuals work, particularly how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can transform an organisation. I'm building a platform at Engaging.Works with the world's biggest business library, where anyone can come and search for information and guidance on their working life. In this series, I'll be speaking with a number of prominent business authors whose books are available to buy on the business library. I'll be speaking to them about their book, what lessons we can take from them, and what they think about the future of working life and business. I'm delighted to be joined uh, on this edition of Meet the Business Author by Christine Armstrong, who's written the quite brilliant book, The Mother of All Jobs, (laughs) subtitled How to Have Children and a Career and Stay Sane-ish. So, Christine, can I start by asking you, what brought you to write this book? So I uh, had a lovely job in advertising um, and I flew all over the world. I did research. So I would go and find out about subjects for big companies, brands, and then I would go and present them, workshop them in loads of different countries. It was brilliant. And uh, very boringly, I got married. I had a baby, got pregnant, and I went to see my then boss, who was a lovely chap uh, with three kids. And he said, you know what, make no plans because after you have a baby, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I told him he was a bit of a patronising git and I went back to my smug little happy world and had a baby. It was all sort of fine. And then I went back to work and he had actually left and gone to join another company and had been replaced by an American who said uh, something along the lines of, gee, Christine, I'm really glad you're back because I need someone to do some PR for me because I don't know anyone in London. And I thought maybe you'd want to work three days a week. So um, the words constructive dismissal weren't words that he was familiar with. And so lawyers, HR people, there was a big mess. And essentially, I went and found another job really, really quickly. And I made a really bad choice. I went to a very hours-heavy research agency uh, with a very macho culture. And um, I pretty much, I'm really interested in conversations and like, you know, stories and people. And this was very data heavy. So it was a terrible environment for me. And I hated it. (laughs) And um, anyway, I was really unsure about what to do and how to get out of it and and how to change things. I was very tired, had a new baby. So uh, I thought really, really hard about what to do. And I decided... how much paternity leave? So I'd taken six months of my first. uh, And so, but thinking about it, and I wasn't eligible for any maternity leave or anything. I hadn't been there very long. But I decided having another baby would be a really good idea and would help. So I went off and I had my second baby. And then I went back. And of course, it was even worse. And then I was like, right, I really need another plan. I can't just keep having babies to get out of this. So uh, I'd written for Management Today before and I called the editor and said, hey, how about I go and interview some people who know how to do this because I'm a moron. I can't make this work. I'm broken. I'm exhausted. I hate my husband. I hate my kids. I hate my life. Um, And he said, sure, do whatever. I don't know. He wasn't that bothered. Uh, So I went and started interviewing. We called them power mums. They were very privileged, very successful women. They had totally lent in. They were chief execs, managing directors. Uh, Amanda McKenzie was one of them. You know, and they would, I, I would talk to them and they would tell me great stories and be very wise and very funny. And I would write them up. 
But in the case of some of the women, and I would say not Amanda, just to be very clear, um, I would then get called back and very, very different stories would emerge. Much darker, more problematic things were going on for some of the people that I interviewed involving children, mental health, their own relationships, the quality of their work environment, their own stress, anxiety, self-medication or doctor-based medication. You know, there was a lot going on. And I realised that in order to tell real stories, you had to take people off the record. So, uh, and also, I also realised that the lean-in idea, which we've all been sold, wasn't working at the most senior level for the women who could afford all the help in the world. So it really wasn't going to be working for anybody on an average salary. So what I did for the book was went out and talked to very ordinary families about how they were trying to make it work, work for them. And... The process of writing the book, how long did it take you to write? Did you take yourself away? So I was co-running a communications and leadership consultancy. And so at first I tried to combine the two. Um, and then I kind of, as the deadline approached, um, uh, the same old chief executive actually gave me the good advice, took me out for lunch and said, uh, you will never forgive yourself if you submit a bad book. Uh, take two months off. And so I did. I took two months off and I totally focused on it, which is very hard because, as you might be able to guess, I am an extrovert. So it wasn't an easy thing for me to do to kind of lock myself away and just get on and write it. But it was really good advice. So when, how did you write? Mornings, evenings? So when I was, so what I like to do is take a really good chunk of time, ideally a day. If I have to take some calls out of it, fine. Um, I have to do, so I'm very interview and story based. So if, if I'm I'm writing all day on my own I just lose the will to live so I have to schedule an interview every day that I'm writing even if it's like you know 20 minutes on the phone half an hour on the phone I'll call someone to lift my energy and then I can flow through the day but then I need to do it again the next day otherwise I just like and no words come and then two months you locked yourself away for yeah you sent the book to a publisher so I had a publisher before I wrote it. So uh, because I think I'd written the Management Day things, I'd also written for a column in a newspaper. I'd done various other bits of writing. Um, and a former editor of mine um, said, I, I told him my, sort of my observation about this, uh, the fact that we only hear from you know, women who are named on the record who tell us everything's fine and we all have to work harder. And I just told him this observation that it's not true and that actually if you got them off the record, they would tell you something different. And he said, you need to write that book. And he's written various books. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. He said, send me the proposal. I said, OK, fine. And I went off with my life. And about two or three weeks later, he called me, where's that bloody proposal? And I said, well, I haven't quite done it. So I kind of sat down and I bashed out two sides. And I emailed it to him and said, oh, is it rubbish? Is it shit? I don't know. And um, he forwarded it to somebody that he knew who was the CEO of Bloomsbury, and said, um, you should publish this. And it, very sensibly, the man responded saying, um, I don't actually, you know, approve <laughs> manuscripts in my role. You may be surprised to hear, but I will send it to someone. And, um, and as he tells the story, the person who sent it in, 17 bloody minutes later, Charlotte, who is my editor, came back and said, I'd really like to talk to you about this. And so the deal was done pretty quickly. Wonderful. Yeah. And then how did you find the process of having the book published, the polishing, the back and forth? I was really surprised. So I don't see myself as a professional writer, and sometimes I'm seen as a journalist just because of, I've written in lots of things, but I've always had a, a kind of a business facing job. Um, so I was really surprised that there wasn't more engagement. I thought that I would be really heavily edited um, and that, uh, I don't know, I, I just thought there'd be loads of engagement in terms of the structure, in terms of what would sell, in terms of, you know, what was really going to resonate with the press coverage. And I was kind of let loose on it by myself, which I thought was brave. <laughs> 
<laughs> possibly reckless of them. Like, and because I've always worked in business, I'm very okay with feedback. Like, you, you tell me it's rubbish. I don't care. I'll change it. You're like, I'm fine with that. But I really never got that. So I kind of submitted it. And they asked for 70,000 words. I submitted 90-ish. And I assumed they'd cut 20. And they just went, oh, no, we're really happy with it. We'll publish it. So I was really surprised what, a, what an easy process that bit was. We did come to blows over the cover. So tell me about that. What did you get the cover you wanted? No, not I have now, but I didn't at the time. So I wanted something that looked halfway between business and halfway between something that would be more engaging lifestyle. And what I was getting back were what I considered to be very soft, very lifestyle. And I really wanted it to have a business element to it. Um, and we kind of debated it. And eventually, on a Friday before a bank holiday, they kind of said you have to choose one of the three or four options they'd sent, all of which I considered to be in the same category. Um, so I called an emergency meeting on the Tuesday morning and was heavily overruled and the cover went out I'd actually AB tested it um, against a cover I wanted which is very similar to the cover we've got now which is black writing on a white background but with a bit of scribbling because I felt that actually that was quite a good representation of my life which is quite businessy with a bit of chaos in the background um, and uh, I knew that this kind of cover was working better with the audience that the book was intended for but apparently that wasn't <laughs> data wasn't enough so you know publishers are unusual they do what they do but I did get I did get the cover I wanted for the paperback which I'm thrilled about and then the book itself what were you hoping to achieve by writing it what impact did you want to make I wanted to explode the stories being told by really really senior women that it's all fine if you work hard and get great childcare because the truth is that everything about how we work has changed and the, the, all the social trends are against us. Uh, people in professional jobs you know, are working from the moment they wake till the moment they go to sleep, they're engaged with work. And if you, in the past, you know, my father used to get home at six o'clock and have dinner with his family and nobody called from work, nobody rang, we didn't have a laptop, we didn't have a Blackberry, we didn't have a mobile phone. You were able to have your dinner and spend your evening doing whatever you wanted, playing bridge, hanging out with your kids, watching telly. And now families are under so much pressure you know you've got two parents if there are two parents desperately trying to juggle this stuff um, and and for less well-off families who are not in professional jobs you've got insecure and unpredictable hours that you're trying to manage um, and so you know this is a huge amount of pressure for people to manage and the advice you just need to work really hard and get great childcare is terrible advice it doesn't work and the other piece of advice just find a great employer well that can be okay but what do they look like who are they and what happens when your manager changes because as you would say from the research you've done it all comes down to your line manager and you can have one one day is really enlightened and gets it and respects you for what you do and the next day get someone who calls a team meeting at 6.30 every day um, and so I you know I wanted to surface some of that and I, I don't want I, I said in the Sunday Times piece I wrote when it came out but you know I didn't I don't want the story to be told by the winners in this that you know the people who are so successful they don't really fully get how this feels and so what's the answer well, there isn't an answer, uh, but there are a couple of, there's two different ways of looking at that. So uh, one way of looking at it is to say, structurally, everything about how we work has changed, but nothing in terms of how we care for families has. So for instance, we get 33 hours of childcare from the age of three, uh, and yet you need to earn well over the average female salary in order to be able to pay for childcare until that time. If you interview families, childcare is almost always mentally deducted from the mother's salary, the mother's income. And so many, many women are pushed out of work at that point. You can't then use those 30 hours to retrain um, or, to, uh, or to interview. So once you've been pushed out of the workforce, it's very difficult to then get back in again. Um, and then when you do go back in, as we know, you go 
going at a lower level, you go part-time, you don't get promoted, you don't progress. Um, meanwhile, school day still finishes at 3.15 in this country, um, and everybody's trying to figure out how to pick that up. So I think we have to make decisions as a society. Do we want uh, everyone who wants to be involved in the workforce to be able to participate? The OECD says that Nordic countries have added between 10 and 20% to their um, GDP by making work accessible to more of the population. Is that the way we want to go? Um, but at the moment, I feel like the social and societal and economic pressure of houses is such that we're pushing women out to work, but we're not providing any of the support systems for the families. And we see another generation of men who are coming who it's not going to work out like it did for their dads, where they can work and have someone at home who also want to work differently and think about life differently. So I think there's a big social piece that, which involves politics and a generation of politicians who don't currently understand this really getting it. And then I think there's also what everybody does in their own individual households and how they manage this period where we're kind of between two places. And some of that's in the book in terms of how you think about organising your time, your money, how you live, the schools you choose and all the rest of it. And did you find the process of interviewing and then writing cathartic for you? Did it help you? I think so. I mean, I think um, a lot of the book comes for me from a terrible guilt of having really made a mess of it myself. And it's quite painful to really look back on the decisions that you made and think that was a really, really shitty series of decisions for your family. Um, and it wasn't a great decisions professionally either. It wasn't like I was loving my job and really, really happy. I was just carrying on doing what I'd always done because I didn't know how to do anything different. So I think there's a catharsis in terms of sending out in the world and thinking, do you know what, if one person is able to make slightly better decisions than I did, that's brilliant. And um, do you feel you've got another book? So I've been... In you? Coming soon? I don't know. I, I'm trying to put it off because I feel, I feel like uh, the economics of publishing are, are pretty brutal. I feel like I need to go back and do some work. And I'm a very sort of quite high energy, kind of want to get on and do stuff sort of person. But there's this niggle in my back of my mind. And I interviewed someone this morning, actually, a dad um, who works for a big bank. And I'm really interested in bullying. I'm really interested in cultures of bullying and people's experience of it and how they change their behaviour in the world. And I think some of the stuff you talk about in terms of happiness at work, um, I think it's a very um, under-considered element of people's working experience. And I think the line between what's bullying and what's a really uncomfortable working environment, like where is that line? And this guy this morning was saying, well, I didn't really identify it as bullying until I left, and now I look back on it, it's really clear to me that it was, but at the time it just felt like I was failing and, and I couldn't really think straight. So I, I sort of feel there's a piece to unpick there and I, I might come back at it. Very good. And My do you feel now busy. that you've, um, you've got the balance better? I do. I mean, I don't believe in perfection and I don't believe in supermum bullshit. So I don't go around going, yeah, my life's perfect. I think um, sort of very much as the researchers say, I have much more control over my time now. So I choose where I do and don't spend time, which makes me feel much happier and much, much more in control of things. Um, but I still find the working day too short because I've got lots to do. And uh, our kids are actually a great... Um, state school which runs from 8.30 to 4 which is a bit longer but still isn't quite enough for me to go and do a really proper day so yes I do but it's never perfect. And do you think that the notion of a perfect life that's um, perpetrated to some extent by social media is one of the things that's damaging in addition to as you were describing uh, what technology is doing to the working day 
uh, affordability of houses means that both people in a relationship need to work. Yep. Is that another fact? Definitely. I've just done, been to uh, seven different sites around the UK interviewing groups of parents for net mums for the website. And um, one of the really big things that comes across is the frustration with the Instagram uh, perfect mums and this sense of inadequacy. And I think combination of those sort of perfect pictures with this kind of you can do it if you try hard enough is putting enormous pressure on families. And I think the sense of parents sort of feeling like they're not good enough, that their kids aren't uh, you know, getting enough time, enough attention, enough clubs, enough activities. I think it's creating a huge mental health crisis. One group I was in, um, in Wales, uh, more than half of the group admitted during it that they were on anti-anxiety medication. And, and, you know, I feel like we're making people very, very anxious and, and people can't just sort of do their job and, you know, earn enough money and be. They sort of always feel that there's more that they should be doing, you know. And mums in, you know, places in Manchester saying, well, I just think, you know, maybe forest schools, you know, maybe, we should, you know, like, OK, but, it, we, you know, we want to live our lives, we don't all live in forests. We can't all aspire to these things um, or, or we can't we can aspire to them, we can't all deliver on them. So, yeah, definitely an issue. And how do you feel about this notion uh, that, that really, I think, comes from the States that if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything in your life? Um, I think it's a lie that's perpetuated to defend capitalism. I think um, that I was, you know, I think when you interview people, people have their own circumstances. They have their own uh, foibles. They have their own limits. And I, I think a, what do we define as success? Uh, B, what do we define as working hard enough? And uh, you know, is success getting to be the chief executive of one of our banks by working 100 hours a week and destroying your relationship and not being close to your kids? Is that success? What, what are we defining here? Um, so I think that there's a real moment to step back and say, what do people really want to get out of their lives? And you know, some of the families I've interviewed have made really active choices and said, we both of us had really demanding, time-consuming jobs and realised we weren't happy, and so we've both stepped back, we've moved somewhere else, we've downgraded our housing, um, and actually we feel much happier about that. And you know, if that's working for them, then I have a lot of respect for it. Well, I'm sure based on all of that, Christine, there's another best-selling book to come, be it on bullying, be it on aspirations and uh, whether they're well-placed or not. But thank you very much uh, to contributing, and I very much hope that people go out and buy your book. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more in this series, please go to engaging.works where you can buy the book and browse over 80,000 other business titles. See you again next time. <laughs>